0: big arms side big arms side
1: Welcome, one and all, to Vision On Sound, with me, Martin Holmes, here on Fab Radio International. Today's show is a bit of a charity affair. Well, it's not. We're gonna talk about charity fundraisers uh, with a young man who's uh, doing his level best to raise as much money as he can for the disabled charity Scope by creating a Doctor Who anthology. And before that, in our usual ignorant way, me and Sandy have a bit of a natter about charity programs on television, but I'm hoping it will make for an interesting hour and if at the end of the hour you feel like buying a copy of TimeScope, well, we hope you will. Okay, I'm going to possibly appropriately kick up the time engines. And in the course of this hour, we'll find out a little bit about TimeScope and the work that Scope does. Enjoy. Enjoy.
0: Hello, Sandy. Hello, Martin. What's happening?
1: What's happening? Well, I'll tell you what's happening today is I have got a quite a long interview in this uh, show with a young man who has created a charity anthology to raise money for Scope. Yeah. And it's based around a TV show. And I really just thought we maybe could briefly talk about charity programmes on television. Or I know you have to f- fundraise for things. And I just wondered whether you'd ever used any of the techniques... <laughs> Or any associations uh... with telly (laughs) that actually might have come into play when you've been thinking about this? Yeah, I've got. I don't mean you've just been begging on the street and sort of (laughs) and selling newspapers and saying, uh, you know, but and handing a cup out or or there with your banjo in the middle of the underpass or whatever. But I just wondered whether. I mean, I know that you uh, work with a theatre group, for example. Mm I mean, but do you ever use tie things into, so Should we say something that's popular at the moment to try and did, to, did a, to ride that way?
0: Yeah, I did. Compare a couple of friends okay. that wanted to do a charity, almost like in a cabaret type show with the two of them, hmm. and I uh, I agreed to. Uh, to compare it so i got my right. I got my white tuxedo out in the kind of uh or not my white white a, a white tuxedo It's not mine so it was it was mine for as long as i was wearing it
1: do you have pictures can i can i attach <laughs> them to the uh, need to you need to upload a picture to the website
0: uh there, there have been been some seen on at one point where we were messing about with uh with rubber ducks little yellow right inflatable not inflatable things things that you'd put in the bath and uh right. the, the two the two main people went off and I kinda of came on, made a little speech about how to support the charity and all the good work that I did and then I walked off and managed to stand on one of these yellow rubber ducks on the floor which kinda of went Meh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> So did you actually I mean was that someone's entry that you ruined <laughs> no, oh, they paid did. their fiver just as I they do have, they do have duck races around here. Yeah, yes we, the, live in, uh, we live in we live in
0: but yeah, so that, that was my, kind of my, kind of, of world. my little, little heartfelt speech was then kind of uh, ended with a comedy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, telly and fundraising sort of walk hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, it's come from America, that really, hasn't it? I remember seeing...
0: It has, yes, the telethon. Yeah, I remember seeing telethons.
1: Mm. Uh, a lot of those were to do with raising money for actual the stations, though, weren't yeah. they? In, in, it, back, in, back in the day, mm-hmm. the actual TV stations were privately funded and and very short of money and they would they would put on these these drugs a bit like i don't know running for president you want basically people to put their hands in the pocket if they like what you're doing so i know for example things like pbs if they were showing old british shows the only way they could because that was cheap but the only way they continue to do it was to to do fundraisers so so they used to have these fundraisers but of course you move you move on and children in need started on radio didn't it
0: right okay yep
1: uh, and then suddenly made the leap to television i think about 40 years ago yeah and and then uncle terry mm-hmm. terry uh, terry wogan yeah. sort of fronted up uh, children in need for a good 30 years i think which which raised an absolute art you know? yeah. and then of course one of the things that changed everything was live aid really yeah. wasn't it and
0: um, yeah i ironically uh, i didn't see the the, the, the... The kind of the main bit of live aid in the evening because uh mm. I went to the pub. <laughs> ah. I happened to be back in Scotland with uh, uh, I was living in England at that time, gone back to Scotland for a weekend mm. and me and about four or five of us went out to the pub. Right. Friend Stephen didn't turn up because it was a bit, he was a massive Beatles fan. There was a rumour that the uh the surviving Beatles were gonna right. appear on stage. So when uh when it got to the kind of the final well anything.
1: I'm I'm not a huge music fan it's true yeah but actually I sat through all 18 hours yeah. that they they transmitted from here and it was kind of weird when there was the crossover bit I mean you know let's face it you know I would cross continents to avoid Phil Collins but it that's did, just yes. pers- <laughs> personal you know if he was flying one way I'd have flown the other <laughs> because he appeared at both didn't yeah. he
0: I, I, I would have liked to think he could have left the first one too early and not turned up in Philadelphia so he, he could have missed both <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well anyway, but apart from Phil Collins, um <laughs> I mean this was I think this it was a bit of a game changer. Now this was again this was using the power of television.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean because this had started after the um the documentary that had shown the famine yeah happening, Mike, Michael, it? The, uh, Michael Burke was it, I think. Michael yeah. Burke. Yes. And uh, this had obviously been shown on television so it shows the power of these things yeah. and then this had triggered bob geldoff and live like they yeah the do it Know it's christmas happened and then the concert happened quite iconic was it, it was july 85 wasn't yeah, it now so it's quite right, a yeah. long time ago now and for for a, a different generation it's kind of their woodstock sort of yeah and i'm still convinced that more people say they're in the crowd than would ever yeah. possibly have been there but it just, i think that's like a frightening, fairly frightening size of crowd when you see it you know, just, well i mean and the fact that that stadium no longer exists of such, yeah. been, yeah. uh, been flattened and rebuilt and what have you and everything yeah. and so but it does show the power of television to reach i mean they say it was about a billion people yeah. around the world and, and of course the you know they say charles and diana but it's you know starts with status quo you yeah. know you get me McC- get mccartney you know i mean you get but the, the, again the it's more the you know you get uh, Duran Duran embarrassing themselves. Yeah. Um, you even get bands like Judas Priest, which yeah. which may not have got the main feed over here, but yeah. they were there, you know. And and yeah. so it is it is a catalogue, it's a snapshot of the yeah. music of the time. But then this, basically, of course, from Live Aid, you got Comic Relief, yeah. which, which started around about that time when when the comedians thought, oh, the musicians. Are... Now, there are some cynics who might suggest that... Um, a lot of people do it to to boost their careers and there is also this this terrible sense sometimes that you know you've got white actors going and patronizing people in in countries and uh, but i think i think you've got to accept that that is not the majority. Most of these people are doing things because they want to do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when bad things are happening, whether or not you're trying to help children in this country with children in need, as yeah. as well as children abroad, and and I think the other strange thing when people now say I want I only want to give my money to things that are British. Well, okay, fine, that's that's your choice. Mm-hmm. But to complain about the fact that the they're do trying to do this whatever good they're trying to do yeah. because of you don't approve of where the money goes to. Well, you know, you don't have to put your hand in your pocket. uh, But I think generally you've got to admire the fact that people are trying to do something in a time when so many people do nothing. And if you're in a position where you are famous or well-known enough to be able to actually use that to help, Mm -hmm. it's laudable that people will do, you know. Uh, We also got things like sport relief, which you probably are more familiar with. No,
0: no. I know the name. It's just like... uh... You have well, never engaged. You never, you've never yeah. sat in a
1: bath of beans or anything. No, like that. no. Oh,
0: okay.
1: But the other the other interesting thing to my mind, and I don't know now you're sat at home. or well, you're no you're no longer gonna be sat at
0: home. I. Oh, I'm gonna be sat at home. But, but I'm gonna be working from <laughs> Well, uh, yes, but you're
1: not gonna be sat at home watching the television in the daytime. You know, I, I must I must report to our listeners that uh, that Sunday's uh, availability may be uh, shuffling around a bit in the next few weeks. Yeah. But because um, he's, he's actually got a job. Who the hell? <laughs> who the hell wants to no, look no, no, no. no very good good for you something yeah. uh, anyway but no uh, you sit at home and you and you watch daytime television yeah it's brutal the, oh. the the adverts that are targeted specifically presumably at people they assume are at home yes. with, with a retirement fund to, mm-hmm. to spend or but sometimes the uh, certainly in the run-up to Christmas the amount of dogs staring at me or children with diseases yeah. staring at you mm-hmm. it's incredibly interesting I think to just become aware of the power of television to absolutely reach out of that yeah. screen mm-hmm. and grab hold of you
0: yeah you know yeah because it's you know the television is on a lot and you keep on mm. seeing these images designed to to draw, well, I to think draw it's, you draw you it's manipulative and, yeah, isn't it, it? i it, mean it certainly really is, yeah.
1: for for the elderly specifically or you know people who are very lonely or, mm. or feeling very guilty or whatever yeah. it the manipulation that sometimes comes out of those adverts it yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. I'm not saying, you know, all well and good, I understand why these things are done and I understand that the, the need is great, but sometimes you just... I think if you want to absolutely understand why we sort of sit every week and talk about television uh, and how it gets into people's lives and into their the whole way they they live and the power of it to make a difference... Yeah. whether it be political i mean people say oh i've never had my mind changed by something i saw on the news or something or a party political broadcast." Even. yeah and yet it obviously does change minds it does get to people be, because yeah. if it didn't they wouldn't do it yeah, but then again adverts adverts right. are i mean basically when all said and done adverts are persuasion yeah so television works as a persuader and because television works as a persuader and it it's an obviously a great thing. So uh, my guest today has written and, or rather coordinated, a charity anthology which is based around a television programme and is using that to raise money for the disabled charity Scope. Yeah. So I think we'll go over to that interview now and I'll come back to you at the end and we'll sign off, all right?
0: OK. OK. Hello, Matthew.
2: Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you.
1: Uh, do you want to talk to us a little bit about television? We, we talk about television a lot on the show and sometimes fandom can be a bit toxic, but actually sometimes fandom comes together and well, tries to do some good. And I just, I, I know you've had a, uh, over the course of the last year, since we all went into lockdown, I know you've been sort of organizing and wrangling and creating uh, a couple of uh, charity projects. And I just wondered if you might want to tell people about uh, what that's all about. Yes, well,
2: so we've had now... When I first went into this um, we were in the midst of lockdown one which at the time obviously we didn't know was going to be lockdown number one and yes we were basically we were on furlough a few colleagues and I and we were all looking to do sort of stuff with our time given all these hours we were spending at home which being retailers were normally out there in shops so we were looking for Mm -hmm. charity projects to do and one of my colleagues in another shop had set the benchmark for a big fundraising thing she'd done so I was thinking right what what can i do what have i got at home and i've been running a doctor who twitter account for about three years now three and a bit years and so that's sort of been slowly building over the years and has got a lot of contacts that i sort of know in the doctor who fandom world so i thought well how can i utilize that to as you say bring get something good out of lockdown and get something good towards a charity whilst we're on the time off so having seen People like uh, Sophie Isles, who's done these charity anthologies before, there's obviously there's decades worth of them. Doctor Who fandom has been doing this for donkey's years, Uh, but that was the one that really stuck in my mind as a recent example of coming together for a charity. I came up with Mm -hmm. what we were calling Time Scope based on the fact that it was raising money for Scope, which is a disability equality charity. And Mm -hmm. it just came to me that like in the five doctors, There's the time scoop, which is the black triangle in the, Mm or it's a swirly special effect in later versions, but in my head, it's always still (laughs) the the black triangle. Ah, the ice cream
1: cone. Yes, Yes,
2: yeah. (laughs) I I think the the static black triangle is somehow more sinister. It's just something Mm. in its bleak, basic triangle shape that is threatening somehow. But anyway, that, that came into my head as something that was like, that plucks people out from across time and space and get them together. And then mm-hmm. it just stuck in my head as the sort of thing I could riff off. Uh, I was trying to think of words t- like scope and, puns and things to bring it all together so time scope came into my head sometimes
1: the problem is it getting a title yes yeah half the battle really yes
2: and some of my short stories you'll be able to tell which short stories were title first then plot and the other ones that the my better ones i think are the ones that are plot first then title the titles aren't as good (laughs) if if it's got a funny title it's probably the title came to me first um but yes
1: so you've you've been sort of writing sort of fan fiction for quite some time then. So this is this is a thing you enjoy doing. I mean, well, any, a, a, sort of anyway,
2: truth be told, I haven't dabbled in fan fiction since I was literally a child myself. As growing up as a child watching right. Doctor Who in the, what, the 90, early nineties, watching them on video as they came out on video. Like as yes. a child, that would be like at school, say you had to write a creative story or something, or just as a child you'd start drawing pictures and things i probably wrote them then but i've always been sort of admiring people who write but but when you get into sort of school and university and then your trajectories all change and you don't you don't continue writing um Hmm. i've done things like website managing at university and things so i've done writing for that or academic writing for university studying and things but i hadn't written fiction four years so I, that was a challenge for myself when uh i started doing it to see if i could even still do it but i put the call out to people who i knew could do it and knew were in that world through this who hats twitter account and right yeah i just i was overwhelmed immediately by A, the Wraith response was coming in because I thought it would be having to Hmm. really nag at people and say, oh, could you... And people were straight (laughs) away, like, within a day of it being posted on the blog post, were coming... Just
1: absolute sort of of wave of love and enthusiasm.
2: Yeah, and also the speed, which they came up with ideas. Like, I gave them a vague theme of connection and instantly I was getting, like people were pitching me three ideas and which one do you think is best and and just the speed people are able to come up with it. So then it sort of snowballed from there, people who came to me with strong ideas and then other ones needed a bit of refining and you kind of, as the project started to come together and I came to see what material I had, I was able to then guide them into, okay, this is how it will fit in. Mm -hmm. Could you just tweet that bit? And I was trying to keep it light. I know Mm -hmm. two is full of death and everything, but given the real-world scenario <laughs> we were playing against, the I, the tone was set that I wanted yes. to keep it a light, positive thing, and kind of yes. it'd be an uplifting collection. So once the story started rolling in, I thought, well, it'd be nice to have some artwork as well. And again, the Doctor mm. Who fandom is awash with talented artists. And that's one thing. Writing, I thought, I can throw my hand, hat in the ring to the writing. I feel like I can write well enough that I could have a go at it. Drawing, I did a few yes practice pictures very early on on post-it notes and was like no this is not my hmm. field i i've not drawn since i was about 17 in school and right. no this is not my area so i ta- appealed then to really talented artists out there on twitter and well you got your,
1: your grandmother involved you? I, I
2: did yes she she again she can draw and um i thought right she's the person for the back cover i had a very specific image i had in mind so i i printed off a screenshot right i sort of recro- recropped it a bit and said can you draw that for me and she, she did and this was all from lockdown so we were having to like because we're not in her bubble we were having to like leave it at the end of her driveway and then go away and then hope she got the envelope yes. and then draw it and then take it back from the end of our driveway <laughs> scan it into a computer yeah. um so yes it's all been everything's been done remotely through 2020 it's all been and, and it's been a huge learning curve it's for amazing all of us. how, how like, people's lives have changed isn't, yes yeah. we've all become even more digitized than we were which is one of the reasons why it was going out as an e-book because i thought well yes. just from a pure point of view I didn't want to be making multiple trips to a post office with a physical product and be like sending a physical thing out there thinking well especially at at the time I was doing the first one I was thinking oh touching products and things like they were going on about the the, living on surfaces and everything and I said I don't really want to be Mm. creating more surfaces so an ebook seemed a good way (laughs) and actually the ebook was the right route to take because it meant sales were able to come in I was able to get them out within 24 hours of orders coming in
1: Yes, and it's a hundred percent profit as well. Yeah, hundred percent profit, that's, which that's means you don't have the,
2: the the overheads, and it's sold to the first book sold to seventeen countries around the world, which I'm quite impressed with. Like, um, wow. there's been people out there in like Singapore and Canada, and it's, it's multi continental. <laughs> so yes,
1: amazing. So um, was it a steep
2: learning curve, or have you actually done books before? No, the, it was a huge learning curve for me, in in, in my head if you speak to me in april 2020 me thinks it's a right, right straightforward i know the process is this is what i'll need to do and then by june hmm. i'm like tearing my hair out like this is sh- huge project <laughs> everything takes longer than it should even things like because my i wrote a lot academically through university But I've been out of uni for about 10 years. And even things like Word, which I would have used daily at university, it's jumped on 10 years. Mm. And then there's things like... Yes. Things like headings, which has always been a feature on Word. Like, I was never shown that. And it's suddenly like, oh, that's a thing, is it? (laughs) And weird things like... Mm. Every, everyone in your, your daily life uses like mailing lists and things on online and things mm. in your work but because mine's not a very it heavy job so my day-to-day working life no. hasn't been on computers and things and so things like mm. well how do you actually go about doing a mailing list and, th- and all things that would be to if you work in mm. an office or any uh, do a lot of online work from home you'll be doing this mm. type of thing daily so it's just little basic things like that we like oh do I actually know how to do that? I used to know how to do that. How do you do it now?
1: And just yeah, yeah. So it was a huge learning curve. But that, in in many ways, you actually benefited yourself from doing the project, even though that wasn't really what you were setting out yeah. to do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, yes. I gained a lot of sort of skills through doing it, even to things like how to communicate with people, how to, that sort of persuasive thing of because everyone was giving up their time and labour mm. for free. But also when you start approaching yes. the more famous people who, because I've got a lot of cast and crew memories intermixed in it. Yes. You're then learning like how to communicate with people, how not to put the pressure on, but ask politely, which I would do naturally, mm-hmm. but also to get them. More. And one of the best tips I got was actually from Katie Manning, who was very early to say yes. And the first one, which gave me a great confidence boost, because mm-hmm. she was one of the first big dot mm-hmm. two names i got on board in the first project and one of the things that mm. came back from one of her emails was be specific with what what you're asking because they right. these type of people get charity requests or even if there wasn't a pandemic on oh. they're getting these type of requests mm. a lot mm. and you have to sort of cut through the noise and be clear focus yes. of here's what i want from you here's sort of the time scale that's going to operate on and here's how you, you get it back to me And that sort of gave me, Mm. right, that's how I go about it. Mm. And some of them were hit and miss. Some, you get an agent who you just get the impression that they haven't actually ever asked the client, they've just said no on their behalf. And that's their right Right. That that's their role. Others, Mm -hmm. when you were actually able to get direct through to the people, they were more the ones that were more successful. You often get kind of a a standard response from an agent where they're not available. And it's like, well, that's five minutes since I sent the email, so... I, I don't think you've asked but you, you can't go back to these people once you've asked you like okay no you let you let that I, one I go i mean that's fair i mean that yeah
1: that's where the politeness comes in yes. and you just so so if anybody else is, is ever thinking of of doing a charity project th- these are some really good tips you can actually give them yes
2: be specific be polite and be clear with what it is you want and just be honest don't try and have any like pull the wool over there at, like no
1: so what was what was it about scope that particularly drew your attention as, as a charity
2: well this year particularly with the coronavirus situation it, it is impacting disabled people more so than much of the rest of the population one stat that's come out of mm-hmm. their research scopes researchers is is that uh, mm-hmm. two-thirds of the people who've actually died from coronavirus in the uk are disabled people so it's it's now with the, obviously through lockdown, every time non-essential shops are put into a lockdown uh, and fundraising yeah. events uh, can't go on. Like you sort of, I don't know, your marathon, London marathon things, all those big events that would typically bring in money for yeah. charity, they're all not happening. So there's a void out there. And rather than sit mm. at home twiddling my thumb through furlough and everything, I just thought, well, I've got all this time on my hands. I've got nothing I need to be doing else mm. with my time. Obviously, I didn't anticipate it taking quite as much of my life, but <laughs> I'm glad I did it. It's kind of been my personal reward for 2020 in that I'm proud of the product we put out there, and I'm proud of Brilliant. the money that's been raised. Yeah. But it, yes, um, but yeah, particularly Scope just seemed like a charity that hmm. that needed.
1: Was it was it a charity you you'd actually had any dealings with in the past?
2: Yeah, I fundraised for them before. I've I, I fundraised in the past right. for. I've done stuff with Cancer Research UK, uh, the Lifeboat right. Charity. Um, and yeah i've done fundraising for scope before so i had contacts Mm -hmm. in that world already so yeah it's it's kind of i it just seemed a natural
1: fit i mean it's just i I know sometimes when it comes to sort of charity projects generally people they pluck it from the air i mean what what did you have a personal reason why that one particularly sort of drew your your attention um
2: not not a particularly personal connection to it no it's kind of yeah it was just because i've fundraised them for for them before and they've been yeah and, and you kind of you no, no, get to know
1: sometimes sometimes people do have a story yeah. behind it you know it's...
2: no when when you get to know the people who work for a charity and stuff as well when you paid in in money for them mm. before you kind of then feel a sort of loyalty to them in a way so and you do have
1: uh i mean like i've noticed on on your uh twitter feed and what have you you do you do seem to have people that you've you've worked with uh over the years or i mean scope have actually been very supportive of the project
2: yes you? um i think it kind of because i didn't tell them only because right there's this kind of because we're working in a copyright protected property that is the bbc owns dr who that's why it says in big letters on the cover it's unofficial and unauthorized i kind of Mm. kept scope at arm's length until the product was out there and the money was rolling in because i didn't want to i wanted to give them sort of plausible deniability in a way i don't know whether you want to leave this Mm. in or not but uh yeah i kind of the the gray area It is uh, because you're dealing with a copyrighted property. I wanted to make it clear like this was coming off my own bat. Scope wasn't Mm. saying, Oh, get a book out there or anything. They weren't saying, Oh, fundraise for us in this way. Like, no, I've done Mm. this. Here's the money. Then they found out mm. about it, and then they, obviously they've been very supportive mm. since, and like they've been, they've praised it on Twitter and stuff. And mm-hmm. but yeah, I just
1: well, I mean, you got mentioned in, in the official magazine, didn't you? You actually got a, a mention. In
2: that. Yes, in so, uh, Doctor Who magazine, we got yes, I uh, got a um, press release out to them and some of the blogs, uh, blog sites, and things. Um, so yes, the Christmas anthology, Twice Upon a Time, Scope, the second volume, mm. which came out Christmas Eve. That came too close down to the wire. I was trying to get enough material ready to get the press release out for um, and a release date out for the Doctor Who magazine come before Christmas, but I didn't get Mm. it together in time. Um, It just, yeah, it was still, literally there was still material coming in the week before Christmas.
1: I mean, you started the Christmas one, what, was it only sort of October?
2: I think the first call-outs came out in September. September but
1: yeah the so basically the di- three months from from nothing to completion is, is is pretty good going anyway for a was it 300 350 pages yeah
2: i've got that uh the first book is 394 pages and the second one comes to 377 pages but the short stories have i up the word limit because i felt like people from yes. the first volume the big feedback was going, like, oh i had another idea i just needed to trim it so i thought right i'll give them a little <laughs> bit more but i had to still make it manageable because uh, i was quite yes. pleased that the second volume there were a lot of returnees but I'm, i was quite pleased because i had 114 people contribute to the first one 78 for the second one yes. 78 was a bit more manageable given the shorter time sca- scale so yes. i was quite pleased not everybody came back for the second one not that i wouldn't have taken them <laughs> but it's just given the yeah. short turnaround it was quite like,
1: well, it's incredible incredible to actually get that out, like I say, in, in three months. I mean, the, I suppose, I mean, the fact is that you, you didn't want it to suddenly come out on Boxing Day, did no, you? You wanted it yeah. out on Christmas uh, Eve.
2: And yeah, and yeah, just also because really, genuinely, this sounds like marketing spin, but really, I was so pleased with the content as it was coming together for twice upon a time scope the christmas one i was reading these all these really nice christmas stories and i just thought this is perfect christmas reading if you're sat especially with whatever (laughs) tier you like i'm quite fortunate at the moment i'm in tier two come the end of this phone call we might be being up to tier three because that announcement's (laughs) coming out soon or we might go further who knows but at the moment we're tier two so we've taken it quite lightly we were tier three in the past yes. but we're tier two at the moment but yeah i was just where people who are in tier four at the moment like there's not much you can go out and do right now and so this is i wanted to get it out there because i just thought it's perfect reading for that block between christmas day and new year's day when everybody's in limbo yes and yeah you've that's some perfect reading time for you mm-hmm. but also the nice thing's been with the christmas release coming out it's given a bump to the first book as well because i've had people buying the first volume who yes. may not have seen it during the summer and yeah so i'm getting some sales of the first one as well so and the good thing is these will just be rolling out there mm. so the first one obviously is less seasonal you can read that anytime. the second one Mm. there's no harm reading christmas story in the summer but um yeah that one again it will roll through to next christmas well if you
1: watch any television at all the christmas episode if it's an american series we tend to get it about six months later anyway don't we so you you're sitting there on a sunny afternoon and and then everybody's suddenly wearing a beard (laughs) so what what are your happiest memories of doing it i mean i I know the actual achievement in itself but the actual
2: i think things little things like when you, you just check your inbox and a name from the show that you grew up watching yeah. suddenly you've got an email from them and it's exactly what you want mm-hmm. a little bit of content for like cast and crew memories mm-hmm. that's that was just like it, it felt surreal in a way because like that's so mm-hmm. outside of my my world i don't mix with famous yes. people i don't like mine's my, a nine-to-five i work in a shop i manage the oh, shop yeah. mm-hmm. and like occasionally we might have someone who reports on the one show coming as a customer. That's that sort of the level yeah. of fame f- I deal with in my real world. Uh, <laughs> not, not so I'm not on the phone to agents all the time and things. So it's just, it was kind of no. surreal to have suddenly contact with the people and then in further emails to, for them to know my name and things and they're like, Oh yeah, they actually mm. know who I am from virtually, but still. Mm. So that was, that was quite a fun thing. Then just when you've got a story, like I don't want to pick favorites, obviously, but na- just no. naturally there are some that just really when you're reading them and Sync. you think i don't need to do any editing on this just from a practical point of view but mm. also like the the fact that people have, have who can write to that standard were submitting mm. material for my project Writing yeah for, you. for me and like how yeah. lucky to be able to get a story like this and then again with the artwork mm. just the quality the people who've drawn artwork specifically for these collections mm the the standard that they've done it to and the time it must have taken and again for people to give up their time for free to support the charity Mm -hmm. it has been quite humbling in a way as well because Mm. i in when i envisaged the project the first one i thought i might get 10 to 30 stories or something (gasps) The first one was 50 stories the second one's 36 yeah. slightly longer short stories yeah. and yeah to have that volume and then yeah it's like say 114 people contributed something to the first one and 78 mm. to the second one and in the time scales now how much prompting did you have
1: to do i mean w- w- as an editor were you actually editing at all you know in the sense of i need a story about this i need a um, story about that or was it was it, very, which, was it much more random than it that?
2: kind of i what i did was i set out Two project boards on the floor with the pictures that mm. came in. I separated it out into columns across the like different by doctor, so right 12, 13 ish columns, or kind of more if you count the war doctor and so on. And we were trying to tread carefully on copyright for the 13th doctor, so there's no fiction, there's only factual and artwork for the 13th doctor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we set it out, and then when the initial wave of pictures came in, I plotted them out on post it notes, saw okay. What do we have a lot of? What don't we have a lot of? Then I started putting out specific mm. appeals for, can anyone do me a this Doctor story or a, that Doctor picture? Mm. By the time the second mm. one rolled around, I was confident that sort of model was working with the first one. Mm. And then yeah, there was a one case where someone had pitched a ninth doctor story, and when it came back in, it was a twelfth doctor story, and like ah, I now have nothing in my ninth right. doctor. So uh the <laughs> end, I was like, All right, who can do me a ninth doctor? And then I had someone else who was like right. could switch the doctor and stuff. So it's kind of balancing okay. it out. There were some doctors like the twelfth doctor is phenomenally popular. Like he he both mm. volumes, his section is is the fullest so and there were other doctors where it it needed a bit of chiving along and then in terms of content it was just a couple of people i needed to for editing points just change a paragraph or two just so they meshed with another story that come in Mm -hmm. and that was kind of organic to the process because everyone writing in isolation didn't know what was coming in weirdly though Mm -hmm. throughout both there were stories that plot points in it or references just if you read it from there's two ways of reading the anthologies you can either dart around time to time and start a short story in the middle short story at the start jump around in time and space the others you can mm. do cover to cover and if you read both cover to cover there's lots of what feel like callbacks and references to earlier stories mm. and all of these were accidental because everyone was writing in isolation but like in the yes. second one there's about it's all it gives makes me look far better as an editor than I I could have possibly hoped because there's like there's three stories that reference the Beatles in the second thing right. and if you fit together the timeline it all sounds like they're all deliberately echoing each other and it's just purely people like the beatles are such a pop culture phenomenon like people would naturally draw on them as reference points but it just slots together really nicely and then wow. and i had two fifth doctor stories come in for the second one and they just work with it i did tweet cite, cheat, and add a sentence in to make it blend hmm. just slightly better but one just serves as a sequel to the other. Same with in the first volume, there's two ninth dot stories. But again, one person has a line where two characters walk to one point, and it's like, oh, that's mm. the setup for the next story. Like it just, it just fit naturally that that's where the next story, that's when the plot point wow. would have happened for that. And it's just wow. so yeah. it's, good, good.
1: People make you look better. Yes. Brilliant, so isn't it, it <laughs> just
2: and as so, like I say, having these. Sp- sp- project boards with the post-it notes just gave me that structure Mm. to head and i could nudge things a few things in the right direction but a lot of things were just organic to the process and then it was a nice balance with because i was deliberately trying to target cast and crew from across the entire era because i'm not Mm. one of these fans that sort of portions off like oh i like this era of doctor or i like that doctor Mm. like no i like all of it genuinely yeah i like the program it's it's just one continuous program yes there was a big jump between 1989 1996 2005 but Mm. it's just one big show lots of different Mm -hmm. versions and producers and everything but it it, i just wanted to say it's also to be a celebration and almost to treat particularly the first time scope to be a sort of snapshot of doctor who fandom and the world of doctor who in 2020 Mm. like
1: doctor who in a in a time of covid yes (laughs) absolutely
2: and also sort of an overview of okay this is where we are up to, up to now and yeah so to get cast and crew from the entire so we've got people like uh margot hayhoe who worked in, on dot two in the 60s right through to mm. salem baxter who was a guest star in the times cha- children which up oh, we've got yeah. revolution of the daleks coming up on new year's day but as i speak that's the most recent episode that's been on air so to have yeah. that entire span of uh history or peter purvis who was a companion mm in the sixties with the first doctor, like mm.
1: you've got that whole whole spread. So but you've also got this huge wave of positivity. I mean, the, the project generally reads as, as, a, as a love letter to the show, I think. The, the joy that people got out of it, I think, at, in a time when everybody was really feeling quite grim, is astonishing. Yeah, and I think coupled, it was
2: running... It was, all the time I was doing this, we had the Dot 2 watch being organised by Emily from uh, Dot 2 magazine and uh, mm-hmm. people like Ellie doing the classic ones. And it just seemed to be we were riding this wave of, yes, the world is bleak, but let's look for something communal and fun and bringing people together in yeah. lockdown because mm-hmm. people have been in so many different circumstances people who've been living on their own and stuff or isolated not seeing their friends and family and stuff it this just was giving people that communal opportunity and it was genuinely nice to hear uh, well to read in the emails when people were submitting their stories like mm. oh even if it doesn't make it in i've had a nice time writing it and mm. there were very few pieces that didn't make it in in some form some mm. needed some work some needed some editing and everyone who didn't make it in was very understanding and it was just a case of like it just wasn't if it didn't feel a fit for the project like, there was a one that i sent back to them i hope it finds a room elsewhere because it was a really well written story it just it wasn't the right tone for it, it was too dark and brooding on death and things and it just didn't quite fit fit the overall thing but yeah the the waves of like you say the positivity and things that's come out of it and it just has felt like a nice sort of communal thing because like when we're not in lockdown which i'm currently not i either i go to work i come home at the moment i don't do anything else i don't go anywhere else (laughs) i haven't been to the cinema since march i haven't so yeah my world has been truncated into my house and my workplace (laughs) And so it's been nice to kind you, of branch out. Did you? Did you ever imagine it would become almost a full-time sort of second no, job? No, that that was that. Like we were saying about learning curves. Mm. Even with the rose tinted glasses set in between the first and second thing. In the the second one, I was all mm. oh, right. It's going to be a much slimmer volume. So it's going to be maybe mm. ten. It's a quick thing before Christmas, mm. and I. I was fooling myself at the time. uh, And then, thankfully is the wrong word, because lockdowns are terrible because it means bad things are happening out there. But lockdown two afforded Mm. me some more time. And given that extra time, I then started commissioning more content. And then that that did then become a full-time job again, second time around. Mm. But I'm glad it did because the end product's
1: better. mm. Do you feel that the feedback on the first one meant that the second one people had more confidence in it and or did you actually think that there was a, a marked sort of sea change in the reaction um, when you yes, were asking I think, for the second
2: one yeah people were it was kind of a trusted property in that in that sense by then because it had kind of hmm. been selling for months people knew in in that hmm. specific it's a very niche market the dot two twitter market but oh.
1: Yeah. everything i mean let's face it archive tv is not exactly you know a broad spectrum thing either so you know we know we know yeah. what you're talking about
2: so. uh, but it, within that world it was mm. had been well received and that that was a boost to it as well because it, it if it had like people had just been oh, oh that's a nice thing for charity but people had been genuinely The feedback has been, oh, I really enjoy reading that story by so-and-so. And And this is where I can be, like, not uh, bragging about my own stuff because it's literally been about other people's stories and other people's artwork. All the feedback Mm. I've seen has been praise for um, so-and-so. And And I've been asking people, like, if they're reading it, just to um, say, or if you particularly enjoy, just tweet about it. Say, Just say, oh, I really enjoyed that by that particular writer. Just because it's a nice thing if if you've genuinely enjoyed something to let the creator know because think these things are all written in a vacuum and like i've read them all mm. as an overview so i've i've seen everything but it's nice to know they're out there now and other people are in are enjoying them
1: so the big question is um is there going to be a volume three not in 2021 um the, <laughs> no the
2: next project steps would be trying to make a print run of the first collection time scope right. viable the the hold up with that has been because there's lots of graphics the costs mm. that i've looked at so far have been quite you're looking at something where nobody would want to pay for one book mm. like 40 50 pounds like for mm. yeah so i've got to work out margins on trying to find a print run for that if mm. i if I that's successful and i'm able to do that then i'd be looking at getting a print bound version of the twice upon a time scope in time for Christmas 2021. It's kind hmm. of, never say never, but um, it a lot of, just in my personal life, a lot of then other back burner projects have gone up hmm. by the wayside because...
1: Well, the, things like this tend to lead to other things, yeah. don't they? I mean, that's... that's it tends to happen. So, you know, the, there is a ripple yes. effect that goes out. Yeah. And, of course, hopefully, I mean, you've sort of, like, inspired other people to do, well, th- you know... That's been things. the nice
2: thing as well, because, um, kind of, I... At the start in April, I had a uh, Zoom call with Sophie Isles, who gave me loads of really useful pointers as to how to go about doing the charity anthology stuff. Just basically like, okay, set up a separate email account and that just makes your life so much easier because then it's all in one place you're not going to be searching through your inbox for an email sent three months earlier what was that
1: thing from that person who sent me that where was it yeah
2: so it's all streamlined into the one place and just realistic expectations of things like some people who will say yes just will never come through and that's fine because you've got other people who will come through this just because everyone's dealing with their own things in life and so Mm. you have to be just flexible with okay some someone will promise something and then someone will come through last minute and that will be great and balance it out mm-hmm. so yeah she gave me loads of useful pointers since then i've been sort of trying passing the baton on in a way i've had uh, people contact me for tips for projects that are coming out in 2021 mm-hmm. so there's been a couple of people to pay it. it
1: forward of course because you are now a publisher oh, yeah, well
2: yes I'm a, I'm a publishing house in in some ways but uh, literally in a house <laughs> but yes yeah, so i've tried to so i've now i've got a big long email i sent out to one person and i've tweaked it i've sent it out about three times now for other people so there's lots of other exciting projects coming up i've i'm writing Excellent. a short story for someone else's project so it's quite nice to be on the reverse side of it and I, and that now <laughs> the fear creeps in it's because because now it'll be edited by someone else like oh actually can oh, i write yes. for it? Cause the the thing with the obviously all my short stories got a free pass because i was the editor so it's like uh yeah well that makes it in by default uh, but now my work's going to be evaluated for, for possible inclusion.
1: Did you actually have somebody you worked with on it at all? I mean, you did you have someone that you passed your stuff to? Um, I had
2: family members. So like my sister and my parents, I've, I've forwarded right. them stuff and said, can you read that for me and stuff like that. So they've done some. And actually in the first volume they say because uh, I was v- I started off a lot more ruthless and they saved many stories and said no actually that story does work because I think I got to a point in about May when they were coming in I got so much more material than I thought I could cope with so I was trying to be like hardline and write what can I actually make work in it and so I was saying hmm. this is my maybe pile tell me which ones work which ones don't and they say no they do work you just if you just take out that bit or tweet that it does Mm. work and i'm so glad they i had that sort of sounding board because then when i did make the tweets and all the authors were really accommodating about any revisions that needed making and then Mm. reading them their their final drafts back it's like i'm so glad this has stayed in i'm so glad that story is still in there because it just again like strengthens the the project and things Mm. so yeah there's me being all hardline and it's like no actually and it's again (laughs) like we say about learning curves and things it's like oh, this is how you be an editor. And I I think it also came, and it came from a point of sort of almost insecurity on my part in that I thought, well, I'm going to have to, I can't expect people to redraft for me. I'll just have to outright reject it. And no, that's not how the process mm. works. If something, without fail, everyone who I asked to do revisions did them without complaint and were like, oh yes, actually that worked. Mm. I like that idea or so on. Or mm. a couple of people did push back on a p- couple of points and were quite right to, because once you then see that once i explain it to you and you see that it's like hmm. i've got it now that makes sense so yeah and then come the second volume i was much more confident to go straight away when i was replying to the email mails straight away with like here's where we can make those editorial changes to make this work hmm. i will include your story if we can tweak this this and this it will work right. and yeah so
1: it's so you now have a glorious respect for those people who, who actually do edit <laughs> yes
2: well yeah and and things like spelling grammar and stuff and things, that that was all stuff mm. i could just do off my own bat just just yes. specific plot points and then some there were a couple of stories that were were so close to the what needed to be the end, end product and you just almost almost there and you just it's quite nice to then tease out okay lose that extra bit of like exposition there it doesn't need it, it if you get to the plot point quicker and and sometimes just the fact that i could see the overview of the whole project i could i was in a position where i could see right that's where a trim needs making and then it will make that story flow better and yeah people were very understanding and accommodating so i was really? very grateful i didn't have any i because uh, i was a bit scared of especially like more established writers who do these fan stories a lot i thought oh they might hmm. be a bit Oh, this new upstart, who does he think he is, or anything and didn't have any of that. So it was it's been a nice and I mean A I started out seeking out people I, I deemed to be nice people through Twitter because we all know the horror stories out there, uh, which we were yes. Oh god. Yeah. Um so we 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 I deliberately avoided anyone. I thought, eh, you might be a bit controversial. I thought so, no, I'll stick to people I think are nice people, they seem nice from their Twitter pages, mm-hmm. I'll target them then and they've all
1: been very nice so i haven't been let down by anyone on that front what more can you ask for so uh would you like to quickly uh tell people how they can get hold of Timescope?
2: yes so they're being sold through a website called big cartel if you search uh on google time scope or twice upon a time scope they are pretty much high up on the results on google that's probably the quickest way rather than read out the url but yeah it's the big uh, big cartel timescope2020.bigcartel.com yeah and then you'll see both volumes listed there so it's timescope 2020.bigcartel.com and both timescope and twice uh, 100 fa- percent of the money i've not made a penny and yeah which is good because it wasn't for me
1: ah so. but in the bank of life you know yes yes <laughs> At this time of year, you know, your 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 chain, Mr. Marley, yes. you know, is no longer there. <laughs> um, and all that. But um, can, people can also find out more about it by following your Twitter feed, yeah. which is
2: @whats. at WhoHats. At um, Any updates and things for any print volumes and things will be announced there first. So it's at WhoHats on, on Twitter. At the moment, you'll see um, me doing the marketing tweets and things. So you'll see links to uh, the volumes there and pin tweets and things. So if you listen to it um, now, you'll be able to find the links there and go and buy it.
1: So uh, out of interest, well, before we sign off, who hats? Where did that
2: come from? Um, oh yes, it's it's a hard one to explain in real life because it started off. I I ran that account like anonymously for about the first three years, and it weirdly there was I put it out to a vote. Did people want to know who are, who I was at the start of twenty twenty? And it came out fifty two percent yes, forty eight percent no. Which <laughs> you can oh that sort of vote. yeah that sort of vote. <laughs> so and weirdly if it had gone the <laughs> other way, and had people wanted it to remain anonymous. TimeScope would never have come about because I would have stayed anonymous. Not, no. So uh, it's uh, fortunate that they it did because then I was like, right, here's who it is. Because I've had my own Twitter account for about 10 years. So yeah, how, actually how it came about. Mm. Um, at the time when I made it, there were a few like good dot two accounts that were like specifically like there's who effects that breaks down the the special effects and in, in detail and things right there was what a parody one called who labels that was just going through every dot two story pointing out anything that was labeled on screen just silly little fun ones like <laughs> okay, that right. um then someone else uh started wigs of yep. doctor who um which ran for a while right. and that was the one that's like okay i'd like a separate account just a silly one what else is is and i'd like I don't know that too in depth that I can be really informative but I can point out hats mm. because I can't do wigs wigs would have been beyond me because <laughs> I, I have a thing where wigs convince me like it can be I just think it's hair and I'm very stupid when it comes to wigs but hats I can point out that's a hat
1: so many st- actors in the 60s who you genuinely think had full heads of hair Yeah, all of them had wigs yes. it's amazing Edward Woodward you know uh, Yeah. Anthony Valentine yes and and you think no no they were lustrous they were lustrous folk uh, but even
2: in real life i'm just like oh yes you've you've just dyed your hair a weird shade of red but no it's a wig of course it's a wig (laughs) but yeah so um but yeah this well you can be confident
1: about a hat you can spot a hat
2: so i thought right well that would be a fun sort of niche thing and and so i just started tweeting out pictures of hats that were in Doctor who and then it kind of snowballed because then it became as i started to network with the other accounts became right well it's nice to have chats about dot two so it sort of became who hats Mm. and dot two chats and chats has the word hats Mm. in it so i thought that still counts um but yeah so and then it just sort of grew from there and once people cottoned (laughs) on to the fact like it was all tongue-in-cheek it sort of snowballed Mm. and then it's weird now people have said it has changed how they view the program because when they spot out they think of the account and they tag me in stuff and things and it's like and it's weird (laughs) now because i'll i'll go i'll watch you and i watch it in in two ways i'm trying to enjoy the story but i'm also anytime there's a hat, hat. it's like oh there's a hat
1: <laughs> so, so you're all your systems yeah. go for new Year's so, Day. yes
2: well I'm, I'm i was pleased Poised. whenever a trailer drops the main thing i'm scanning for is are they going to let me down and not have a hat because there are a few modern episodes <laughs> like, i think i think it's this i can't even say the suranga conundrum i think that's hat free Mm -hmm. so that's a letdown for me as an episode whereas this one in the trailer there were hat if there's hats in the trailer i can relax because like right there's definitely gonna be a hat in there somewhere but if it's if yeah so it's become a weird obsession and i i fully acknowledge it's not ordinary behavior to be pointing out hats in dot two but as long as people but are you a hat wearer yourself I question. don't suit a hat. What I've been asked this before, and like, no, I try them on. I see them in shops. I I go to a mirror, and it's like, mm-hmm. no, it just does. Like they're nice on the on the rack, <laughs> nice on the shelf. Come towards my head, and it instantly it's a no. So yeah. So
1: there you go. That's the thing. Yes, it, it's it's it's, a, it's an actual lust it, it's thing. A, you, it's, you, an admira- it's an an admiration hat-age. for the
2: art form rather than something I could success- <laughs> successfully pull off myself fabulous Uh, but yes
1: well that's been fabulous thank you very much for your time today thank you and uh yes thank you
2: also to you for your uh your poetry in the first one and your artwork in both volumes oh um and some very last minute artwork that i really was desperate for in the second one and you came through for me so thank you very much
1: Uh, always a pleasure but anyway thank you very much so thank you for your time today and um hopefully you never know if if you enjoy yourself we'll have you back thank you very much talk about something else thank you Okay, you take care of Thanks very much. Okay. As he mentioned in the interview, Matthew Rimmer is the editor of Timescope and the follow-up volume Twice Upon a Timescope and is the head curator of At Who Hats on Twitter, a Twitter account dedicated to Doctor Who and its hats. He can also be found under his own name at Matthew Rimmer. As ever, he's immensely grateful to everyone who volunteered their time to work on this project and no one received a fee for their work and 100% of the profits go directly to Scope. Time Scope and its follow-up Twice Upon a Time Scope are collections of short stories, poetry and artwork that involve the characters created in the BBC TV series Doctor Who. 2020 was a hard year for everyone but in the face of adversity people came together to help out where they could. The first Timescope anthology was created and published during the first national lockdown and went on to raise over £2,200 for the disability equality charity Scope. The second one came out just before Christmas and has already raised several hundred pounds. Two-thirds of all people who have died as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic were disabled people, and Scope has seen a 79% surge in demand for their family services over 2020. At the same time, continual cycles of lockdowns and restrictions meant that uh, Scope's charity shops are missing out on trade, and fundraising events have had to be cancelled, resulting in a severe shortfall in the vital funds needed for the charities to continue to provide support for those most vulnerable in society. So, basically... If anyone's doing a fundraiser, you know, and you are able to help, please, it's desperately needed. So there you go, Sandy. That was Matthew Rimmer and his anthology time scope and his follow-up uh, which he did for christmas which was called twice upon a time scope uh, which is a collection of short stories based around uh, doctor okay. who and was, was a fundraiser for scope so yep. if you can go out order yourself a copy it's well worth it if you like that sort of thing and indeed okay so sandy a uh, bit of a charity week this week yes don't like to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so get your hand in your pocket. No, so I will be back and uh, talk to you again soon. So thank you to Matthew for doing that, and uh, thank you, Sunday. Cheers, Martin. See you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye bye.